Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Greetings fellow time travellers, as always it's a delight to have you in my company for us all to be together as we travel through time and space together. As always again, before we start on this week's episode, a huge thank you to all the people who support this podcast series by signing up to my patreon.com site. It's the finances from there that make everything else that Paul and I do together possible. So if you're one of those, a thousand thank yous. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to join, go to patreon.com find me by name, Neil Oliver, uh, and just jump through some hoops, part with some cash, and become a member of the family. And you get access to the weekly question and answer sessions, vodcasts, competitions. You also get access to each other. Join a group of like-minded individuals interested in history with questions to ask. Uh, so come along, join up. Lovely to have you with me. That's enough of the advert. It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Five thousand years ago, the first writing began as our ancestors pressed marks into wet clay. In the middle of the 15th century, new technology is propelling our species forward yet again. A man with a brilliant brain meets a merchant with money, developing pieces of movable type A revolution is set in motion that will transform the world. The printing press rolls into action and information goes viral for the very first time. Kickstarting a new age. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, last week it was 1381 when we travelled with you to London as the poor of Britain rose up in their fight for freedom, fair pay and equality. Where are we this week? Hello again Paul. Well this week we find ourselves in the midst of another revolution. But this revolution is one of a completely different kind. It's technological rather than political. We're in the next century, it's the middle of the 1400s and we're heading to Germany to the pretty town of Mainz, which sits on the Rhine River. It's here that Johannes Gutenberg, one of the big brains of the day, meets Johann Fust, an inspired money man. And together, their collaboration leads to the birth of the information age. Well, you can see I'm in a slightly different location. Different backdrop. I'm on the the move this week, so um, I've... uh, I've, uh, taken a pause on my 
travels and, and here I am. So anyone wondering what's going on behind me, uh, I'm in a, an unfamiliar location. But where we are in history, it's, uh, it's one that everyone probably heard of, really. It's not going to be unfamiliar. It's the what's usually described as the invention of the printing press uh, by Johannes Gutenberg in the 15th century. We're in Germany, we're in Mainz, and it's a moment of huge significance, really. Everyone talks now about the fourth industrial revolution. Before that, there's the huge significance of the coming of the internet, because it has enabled all, all that instantaneous dissemination of all the data in the world, all around the world, <laughs> everywhere, all the time. And that's been hugely significant. Well, prior to the coming of, of the internet and whatever the fourth industrial revolution holds for us, it was the ability to print, to mass produce printed pamphlets, leaflets and books that changed the world in a way it had not changed since the invention of writing. There are many ways in which you can you know, break up the development of the evolution of human culture, but the coming of writing, that ability to, to capture thought and like a butterfly, take it out of the air and pin it on a board and keep it forever. That's what writing, which invented 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, in the old world, that's what writing did. Rather than everything having to be oral, everything having to be committed to memory and learned by rote and recited, now someone invented codes that you could use to put thoughts down, first of all on, on clay, but ultimately on papyrus and paper and all the rest. After that, the next big step that changed everything again was the development of the printing press and really most specifically movable type uh, by Johannes Gutenberg in the 15th century. It's worth thinking about where we were as a civilization in Europe, let's say in the, in the middle years of the 15th century. We were blessed once again by the great learning that had been achieved and acquired and passed on by the ancient Greeks and the, and the ancient Egyptians and traditions coming out of the Indian subcontinent. By the 15th century, that learning was back again in Europe. It had been absent for a while, you know, through that period that historians learned to call the Dark Ages and whatever. I mean, it's, it's wrongly applied, really. It's a, it's a pejorative term that doesn't really help because it wasn't a time of, of darkness in any, in any meaningful sense. But we remember the Dark Ages. But the Renaissance was the return of, of all that great classical wisdom. And there's just no doubting that Europe was able to reacquire all of that learning via Islam. It was the Islamic scholars... Obviously, you know, Muhammad is, is born in the in the 500s, and then during the 600s and after, there was this flowering of Islamic civilization. And for hundreds of years, the Islamic civilization got ahead of everybody in terms of science and mathematics and medicine. They were at the forefront of everything, and they did it because they rediscovered the older manuscripts in Greek primarily, but from other civilizations and other cultures besides, and they translated into Arabic. And then from Arabic, it was then passed into Europe. So, for example, great foundational works like Euclid's Geometry, published form as Euclid's Elements. And until the 20th century, Euclid's Elements formed the foundation of the teaching of mathematics in the West, here in Britain. That was translated into Latin out of the Arabic language. The works of Ptolemy, the navigational tool that is, was the astrolabe, 
that enabled mariners to cross the world's oceans, that was saved for us by the Arabic Islamic scholars. Numbers, the familiar numbers, not, not the Roman numerals that nobody uses now for obvious reasons, but the numbers, one, two, three, four, five, that we're all familiar with, they originally came out of India. The decimal point included, actually, but they came out of India, but it was via Islam that they came into the West. Greek medicine, the Greeks had made great strides in understanding the, the ailments of the human body and how to treat them. So works by Aristotle, Galen, Hippocrates, the Hippocratic Oath, which, you know, we've all, we've all wondered about the, the extent to which the Hippocratic Oath was respected in recent years, first do no harm and all of that, but nonetheless... Uh, that was saved for us and was transmitted, translated into the West out of Ar Arabic. Historians call it the Renaissance, the rebirth. But it was also at the same time that it was as though desiccated soil was irrigated by incoming life-giving water. And that incoming life-giving water was the contribution made by, by these, these Islamic scholars. So that was all coming in. So that, that knowledge was coming back into Europe. But what made all the difference was its dissemination the existence of information is only half of the, the equation. You need to get that data, that information, that wisdom out to as many people as possible. And what made it possible in the middle years of the 15th century was the invention of movable type and a printing press by Johannes Gutenberg. But there were books before that point, mate. There were books, manuscript, written by hand. So the, the tradition was you would have monks in the main, churchmen, in their monasteries would have a scriptorium, which was a room where they all sat at desks and they copied by hand from an original manuscript. They would, they would make one more by, by copying it out letter for letter, word for word. So the copying of a book could take months of effort by individuals. So there were books, but they were written by hand, by manuscript by hand, written by hand. And so you've got a log jam, you've got a problem that you can't get enough of the product out to the people that want it. It's hard to get your head around that as a modern person, isn't it? That well, well, imagine if you imagine if you had a copy of the Bible in whatever form, and your your child wanted a copy of it as well, and your only option was to copy it out in real time by hand, you know, from Genesis chapter one, verse one. Imagine how long that would take you before you were in a position to hand off a copy of the Bible to your child. That was the predicament of, of society and, and civilization. So by the middle years of the 15th century, various people were trying to solve the problem. And that's always what happens. You know, when the light bulb was finally invented, there were other people trying to solve the same problem at the same time. So Johannes Gutenberg would not by any means have been the only person who was working on it. But he nudged it. He just, he just got in ahead. He just got in ahead of the others. For background, Johannes Gutenberg, he was born somewhere around 1400, not exactly sure. He's, you know, his family were, were quite well to do. His father was an influential figure in Mainz, which was his, you know, his hometown. Between about 1430 and 1444, he's on record as working as a jeweller, a goldsmith. He's sometimes described as the diamond polisher of Mainz. So he's, that's, that's his trade. You know, so you can imagine that he's, he's acquired some of the, the careful exact skills of, of working with metal, you know, precision, carving, shaping, which was which was to be significant. And historians have, sub have subsequently concluded that he must have been working on the idea of a printing press 
from the late 1430s onwards. So he's, he's got his day job as a jeweller, but in the background and at night and whatever, he's, he's working away trying to solve this problem of how to mass produce text. And the tradition at that time, as far as printing went, was to, was to laboriously carve into a block of wood whatever it was you wanted. Words, a, a picture, an image, smear it with ink and then press it down hard onto paper. And you lift off the block and the, the printed image is there. But Johannes Gutenberg was not by any means the only one who had realised that it was a hopelessly time-consuming exercise. You know, every page had to be carved in, in its entirety. But what he did, what his, his work of genius was to take shafts of wood, narrow rods, and to carve, using his, you know, jeweller's skills, individual letters in reverse into the end of a shaft of wood. And then he pressed that down into a bed of damp sand, so it created a little pocket at the bottom of which was the letter. He then used that as the mould for molten metal. He poured metal in. And so out of each little plug hole, he obtained a piece of type. All the letters of the alphabet, one by one. And then multiple copies, you know, because obviously you need 50 A's and 50 B's and 50 C's and whatever. Before, Then you can assemble them like in the old days of hot metal in the, in the newspaper industry before it all went digital, all the letters could be assembled into words, into sentences, into paragraphs, into columns of text. So this is movable type. This was Johannes Gutenberg's crucial... It wasn't the press, because the press that he used was basically the same as the press that was used for getting the, the juice out of grapes or apples, just something with a, a heavy weight on the top to, you know, to get the necessary pressure. His genius contribution was the movable type. His other contribution was he mixed ink, printer's ink, with oil to get to make it sticky so that it adhered to the movable type so that you could press down the same load of ink multiple times without it all just coming straight off onto the paper in one go. So you got, you know, 10 copies, 100 copies or whatever from, from the same smearing of, of sticky ink. This was what he was working on. This was his genius, but he needed money. You know, like like anyone, like anyone who's who's got an an invention in mind and got a prototype and got ideas in his head, in order to realise all of this and, and to make it into a going concern, he didn't have the necessary cash. So, by about fourteen forty eight, he's back. He was a jeweller in Strasbourg. His backstory is a little bit vague, but he was certainly in Strasbourg. Then he comes back to his hometown of Mainz, and he's he's working in a, a workshop uh, called the Hof zum Humbrich workshop. It was on the town square in Mainz. Sometime around 1450, so after a couple of years back in mind, he approaches a local moneylender. This is crucial. A rich guy, a guy with cash, called Johann Fust. And he hits him up for a loan of 800 guilders, which is a lot of money. But he, you know, he goes in and makes a pitch, you know, his business plan, tells him about his press and how it's going to you know, change the world. He tells him, basically, that he can produce, in a couple of weeks, a copy of a book that would take years for a team of scribes to produce. So a money man can instantly see the, the possible return on this investment. So, you know, he signs up. He makes his kit, his prototype press and the movable type. He puts all that up as collateral against the loan. And Johan gives him the 800 guilders and tells him to get on with it. The problem that they have, the clash that they have, is that Fust just wants to get to market. He just wants books yesterday. Gutenberg wants perfection 
So you've got a, an immovable object, unstoppable force type clash of personalities there. So Fust's after him all the time for when can we start printing books and Gutenberg's going, not yet, not yet. After two years with no books printed, he goes back to Fust and asks for another 800 guilders. Okay, this time Fust agrees but says, right, we're partners. I own as much of this as you do, plus your kit continues to be collateral. Uh, none of it was repaid and none of it had been acted upon by 1455. Okay, so Fust's been invested since 1450. Five years later, there's nothing to show for it. So he sues Gutenberg and Wright is on his side and he gains ownership of everything. He gets the presses, the movable type, the recipe for the ink. By this point, Gutenberg's apprentice and best employee, a guy called Peter Schoffer, has married Fust's daughter. So Fust now has his best apprentice, his best employee, as his son-in-law. And he comes to, he leaves Gutenberg behind and goes to work for his father-in-law. So Gutenberg's lost everything. By that point, the Gutenberg Bible was complete. That's the first product of all that effort is complete. Uh, it's regarded to this day by bibliophiles, you know, by book, by book lovers, as one of the most beautiful and perfect books ever printed. And yet it was the first. It's still regarded as one of the, you know, as, as perfection. Uh, that first copy went into the collection of a churchman called Cardinal Mazarin. So as well as being described as the Gutenberg Bible, it's also called the Mazarin Bible. Uh, there were more than one copy of this thing. Let's be clear about that. But you know, one of the first went into the collection of Cardinal Mazarin. It's also known as the 42-line Bible because there's 42 lines of text on each page. So it's known that that product is known all at the same time as the Gutenberg Bible, the Mazarin Bible, or the 42-line Bible. It's all the same thing. So Gutenberg managed to print a book before he yeah. got it all taken away from him. Yes, he had demonstrated that the, 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 the system worked. He was able to print, but nonetheless he had reneged on the deal. The contract into which he had entered with Fust, where he had offered up his kit as collateral, where he had promised a return on the loan, he hadn't been able to meet his end of the obligation. So when Fust took him to court, winner took all, and Fust got the lot. Um, but it's it's tragic, really, because the, the contribution that Gutenberg had made changed the world. For the very first time, information could go viral in the way that we understand it. Instead of dozens of guys copying books out laboriously by hand, poof, a few hours you were able to print off copies of books and out they went. And so information, Bibles um, amongst the first, but, it, but anything and everything, leaflets, pamphlets, propaganda, you whatever people wanted to print, they could make with the technology and with the kit that Gutenberg had come up with and that Johann Fust was now in control of. And there's a collection, there's attention paid by book lovers to the books that were printed in that first half century, from 1455 until 1500. And amongst the book-loving fraternity, they're known as incanabula, which is a Latin word that means it's like cradle or swaddling clothes. But it's making the point that these books are like newborn. They're as precious as, as newborn infant. The books that were made in that first half century... There's a, a book that was written in 1898 by a bibliographer called Robert Proctor. It's called, catchy title, The Index to the Early Printed Books in the British Museum from the Invention of Printing to the Year 1500 with notes of those in the Bodleian Library. 
<laughs> right. And it, but it's a, a reference work detailing those books, those incunabula that were made between 1455 and 1500. And it, it details that in that period there were 35,000 separate books, 35,000 separate titles, of which, in many cases, thousands of copies were made. So of, of any given title, there were often hundreds, if not thousands of copies pressed in that first 50 years. Germany and Italy were the two nations that were the most productive. And in Venice alone, in just one city, more than a million copies were printed of around 4,500 different books. So when you, when you talk about going viral, it's not hyperbole. That was the impact of that technology on the production of and the circulation of the printed word. There's a number of, there's all manner of things that are fascinating about it, but often in the story of the world, we've considered the impact of one person, like Buddha or Jesus or Hitler. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's one person that spins the world through 180 degrees or whatever, or turns it upside down. But at other times, just as important, it's been two. You know, it's been a dyad. You know, so in, in our own time, you know, you've got the double act of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak around Apple, or you've got Larry Page and Sergey Brin who meet in the, the computer science course at Stanford University and collaborate to come up with Google. Now, you know, without them, there'd be other search engines. There are other search engines on the internet, but there'd be no Google. And likewise, the printing press was down to the coming together of the brains and the money represented by Johannes Gutenberg and Johann Fust. Without that coming together, you know, without that necessary finance coming in from Fust, Gutenberg may never have been able to realise his dream. You cannot overstate the significance of the coming of the printed word. 5,000 years ago, right at the start, you've got Enheduanna, who was the first named writer, the first named poet, 5,000 years ago. And then, eventually we'll get to it, in 1974, the TCPIP, the Transmission Control Protocol, Internet Protocol, ordered and structured the movement of data on the internet. Right? So you've got 5,000 years ago, the invention of writing. 1974, you've got the coming of the internet. In the middle of that, forming the trinity of incalculable significance is the contribution made by Johannes Gutenberg, who came up with the press, and Johann Fust, who paid for it. And together, they were one of those double acts that changed the world forever. Prophecy stalks the streets of this great city. Formidable double-walled defences have protected it for centuries, but treachery, or a fatal mistake, allows thousands of enemy warriors to breach its fortifications and pour inside. And the Byzantine capital's direct line of descent, stretching back 3,000 years to the classical world of Athens and Rome, is cut with an Ottoman scimitar. East is now east and west is west, and nothing will ever be the same again. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. 
get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.